0: Hi, and welcome back to this Book of Mormon podcast. This is going to be uh, Alma chapter 7. This will be a little bit of a long one. This one's a very important one because, of a, because it has lots of doctrine and, and, uh, and uh, information about the atonement. question that I have at the front is, uh, when Jesus did the atonement in the garden, what caused him to suffer so much, and, and how was it? Was it all of our sins combined upon him all at once that caused it, or what was it? So we'll talk about that a little bit later. Chapter 7. Verse 1, Behold, my, bro- my beloved brethren, seeing that I have been permitted to come unto you, therefore I attempt to address you in my language. So this is Alma speaking now to, to his people, and these are people that are in the city of Gideon. Remember, he went over to the city of Gideon to preach. Hugh indicates that this means that there were different dialects when he says, I address you in my language, uh, that there were m- m- many different dialects among the different villages. Yea by my own voice, by my own mouth, seeing that it is the first time that I have spoken unto you by the words of my mouth, I have been wholly confined to the judgment seat, having had much business that I could not come unto you. And even I could not come now at this time were it not that the judgment seat hath been given to another to reign in my stead. And the Lord in much mercy hath granted that I should come unto you and behold I have come having great hopes and much desire that I should find that he had humbled that ye had humbled yourselves before God and that ye had continued in the supplicating of his grace that I should find that ye were blameless before him That I should find that ye were not in the awful dilemma that our brethren were in at Zarahemla, but blessed be, but blessed be the name of God that He hath given me to know, yea, hath given unto me the exceeding great joy of knowing that they are established again in the way of His righteousness. In other words, he said that the spirits told him that the people of Zarahemla had heeded His words and repented. And I trust, according to the Spirit of God which is in me, that I shall also have joy over you. Nevertheless, I do not desire that my joy over you should come by the cause of so much afflictions and sorrow, which I have had for the brethren of Zarahemla. For behold, my joy cometh over them after waiting through much affliction and sorrow. But behold, I trust that ye are not in a state of so much unbelief as were, the, as were your brethren. The following were probably the areas where the people of Zarahemla had had problems. I trust that ye are not lifted up in the pride of your hearts. Yea, I trust that ye have not set your hearts upon riches and the vain things of the world. Yea, I trust that ye do not worship idols, but that ye do worship the true and the living God, and that ye look forward for the remission of your sins with an everlasting faith which is in, which is to come. The the usage of the phrase, I trust, is evidence of Alma's faith in a future reality. The use of the negative qualities were what was being done in Zarahemla. Verse 7, For behold, I say unto you, there there be many things to come, and behold, there is one thing which is of more importance than they all. For behold, the time is not far distant, that the Redeemer liveth and cometh among his people. Joseph Smith taught that the fundamental principles of our religion are the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, and rose again the third day, and ascended into heaven, and all other things which pertain to our religion are only appendages to it. Truth, glorious truth, proclaims there is a mediator. Through him mercy can be fully extended to each of us without offending the eternal law of justice. This truth is the very root of Christian doctrine. You may know much about the gospel as its branches out from there, as it branches out from there. But if you only know the branches and those branches do not touch that root, if they have been cut free from the truth, there will be no life, nor substance, nor redemption in them. And that was by Elder Boyd K. Packer, verse eight. Behold, I do not say that he will come among us at the time of. In other words, among the Nephites at the time of his dwelling in his mortal tabernacle. For behold, the Spirit hath not said unto me that he should be that this should be the case. Now as to the, this thing I do not know, but this much I do know, that the Lord God hath power to do all things which are according to his word. So he's going to experience mortality in Israel, not among the Nephites, but then he'll visit the Nephites after his resurrection. But behold, the Spirit hath said that inasmuch to me, Uh, This much to me, cry unto this people, saying, Repent ye, and prepare the way of the Lord, and walk in his paths which are straight. For behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the Son of God cometh upon the face of the earth. This sounds like, again, a, a New Testament prophecy, even like that of John the Baptist. And behold, he shall be born of Mary at Jerusalem. Notice he doesn't say in Not at Jerusalem, but at Jerusalem. Not in Jerusalem, but at Jerusalem. Bethlehem is just outside of Jerusalem, about six miles to the south, and is considered at Jerusalem. Joseph Fielding Smith said, This question has, in recent weeks, come from several sources. It is from the promptings of enemies of the church who spend their time in a futile endeavor to discredit the Book of Mormon, attempting to make it the product of the mind of Joseph Smith the prophet, or some other person in collusion with him. These religious persons who sponsor this question may well be compared to the scribes and Pharisees of old, and the Savior's description of them as recorded in Matthew chapter 23 fits these modern Pharisees and scribes admirably. They attempt to show that the Book of Mormon is of modern authorship, and this attempt has been going on for 125 years and is farther away from effectiveness than in the beginning. It has utterly failed. Joseph Smith and those associates— With him, when the Book of Mormon was translated, knew perfectly well that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. If the Book of Mormon had been the production of the prophet Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, or anyone else connected with this restoration, it would have stated plainly that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, for they they were well aware of this fact. There has been an effort to make it appear that the prophet was a very ignorant man who did not know where Jesus was born. In this they display their bitterness and hate and add to their confusion, for an ignorant man, unacquainted with the fact of the birth of Jesus Christ, could not have written the Book of Mormon. The fact that it is written in Alma as it is indicates plainly that it is an expression coming from the Hebrew, for this is purely a Hebrew expression in full accord with their manner of speech. Again, evidence that this is translated material and not something out of the mind of Joseph Smith. This is showing that it's of Hebrew origin. There is no conflict or contradiction in the Book of Mormon with any, any truth recorded in the Bible. A careful reading of what Alma said will show that he had no intention of declaring that Jesus would be born in Jerusalem. Alma knew better. So did Joseph Smith and those who were associated with him in the bringing forth of the Book of Mormon. Had Alma said, born in Jerusalem, the city of our fathers, it would have made all the difference in the world. Then he would have said he, he made an error. Alma made no mistake, and what he said is true. Hugh Nibley said in this course of study for the priesthood for 1957, an approach to the Book of Mormon, uh, it said on this point, one of the favorite points of attack on the Book of Mormon has been the statement in Alma 7.10 that the Savior would be born at Jerusalem. Uh, Here Jerusalem is not the city in the land of our forefathers, it is the land Christ was born in a village some six miles from the city of Jerusalem. It was not in the city, but it was in what we now know The ancient themselves designated as the land of Jerusalem. Such a neat test of authenticity is not often found in ancient documents. Hugh Nibley said when we speak of Jerusalem it is important to notice Nephi's preference not of non-biblical expression the land of Jerusalem uh, in designating his homeland while he and his brothers always regard the land of Jerusalem as their home, it is perfectly clear from a number of passages that the land of our father's inheritance cannot possibly be within or even very near the city, even though Lehi had dwelt at Jerusalem in all his days. The terms seem confused, but they they correctly reflect actual conditions. For in the Amarna letters we read of the land of Jerusalem as an area larger than the city itself, and even learn in one instance that a city of the land of Jerusalem that Nineveh has been captured. It was the rule of Palestine and Syria, at the same let- as the same letters show for a large area around a city, and all the inhabitants of that area to bear the name of the city. This was a holdover from the times when the city and the land were a single political unit, comprising a city-state. When this was absorbed into a larger empire, the original identity was preserved, though it had been lost its original political significance. This arrangement deserves mention because many have pointed to the statement that the Savior would be born at Jerusalem, which is the land of our forefathers, as sure proof of fraud. It is rather the opposite, faithfully preserving the ancient terminology to describe a system which has only been recently rediscovered. Continuing uh, the verse, which is the land of our forefathers, she being a virgin, a precious and chosen vessel. Elder McConkie said of Mary, we cannot but think that the Father would choose the greatest female spirit to be the mother of his son, even as he chose the male spirit like unto him to be the Savior, who shall be overshadowed and conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost and bring forth a son, yea, even the Son of God. In other words, the Holy Ghost shall be the enabling power and Jesus shall be the literal Son of Heavenly Father verse 13, or verse 11. And he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind in this, that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. Think of it. When his body was taken from the cross and hastily placed in a borrowed tomb, he, the sinless son of God, had already taken upon him not only the sins and temptations of every human soul who will repent, but all who all of our sickness and grief and pain of every kind. He suffered these afflictions as we suffered them according to the flesh. He suffered them all. He did this to perfect his mercy and his ability to lift us above our earthly trial. Every earthly trial. John Taylor, and that was by Howard W. Hunter. Uh, John Taylor said, there came upon him the weight and agony of ages. Hence his profound grief his indescribable anguish, his overpowering torture, all experienced in the submission to the eternal fiat of Jehovah and the requirements of an inexorable law. Groaning beneath this concentrated load, this intense incomprehensible pressure, this terrible exaction of divine justice from which feeble humanity shrank, and through the agony thus experienced, sweating great drops of blood, he, he was led to exclaim, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That was by Ted Collister. Bruce Hafen has said, Some church members feel weighted down with discouragement about the circumstances of their personal lives, even when they are making sustained and admirable efforts. Frequently, these feelings of self-disappointment come not from wrongdoing, but from stresses and troubles for which we may not be fully to blame. The atonement of Jesus Christ applies to these experiences because it applies to all of life. The Savior can wipe away all of our tears after all we can do. The Savior's atonement is the healing power not only for sin, but also for carelessness, inadequacy, and all mortal bitterness. The atonement is not just for sinners. Verse 12 And he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people, and he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy, according to the flesh. That he may know, according to the flesh, how to succor his people according to their infirmities. So it gives us, uh, it shows us what he's going to do and for what reason. Elder Maxwell said, uh, gave some insights into the relationship between the Atonement and the Savior's succoring powers. He said, his empathy and capacity to succor us in our own sickness, temptations, or, or sins were demonstrated and perfected in the process of the Great Atonement. He also said the marvelous atonement brought about not only immortality, but also the final perfection of Jesus' empathetic and helping capacity. No mortal can cry out, he does not understand my plight, for my trials are unique. There is nothing outside the scope of the Savior's experience. He also said none of us can tell Christ anything about depression. <clears throat> As a result of his mortal experience, culminating in the atonement, the Savior knows understands and feels every human condition, every human woe, and every human loss. He can comfort as no other. He can lift burdens as no other. He can listen as no other. Now, this is by Elder Bateman uh, in the conference talk in October of 2005. And this answers the question that I asked uh, earlier in in the podcast. For many years, I thought of the Savior's experience in the garden and on the cross. As places where a large mass of sin was heaped upon him, through the words of Alma, Abinadi, Isaiah, and other prophets, however, my view has changed. Instead of an impersonal mass of sin, there was a long line of people. As Jesus felt our infirmities, bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, and was bruised for our iniquities. The atonement was an intimate, personal experience in which Jesus came to know how to help each of us. The Pearl of Great Price teaches that Moses was shown all the inhabitants of the earth which were numberless as the sand upon the seashore. If Moses beheld every soul, then it seems reasonable that the creator of the universe has the power to become intimately acquainted with each of us. He learned about your weaknesses and mine. He experienced your pains and sufferings. He experienced mine. I testify that he knows us and he understands the way in which we deal with temptations. He knows our weaknesses, but more than that, more than just knowing us, he knows how to help us if we come to him in faith. Because he uh, suffered the atonement and, and experienced each of our sins and weaknesses and so on, he can, he knows how then to save us and to help us. It seems that Elder Bateman is saying that... Uh, for the first time Jesus was, for when Jesus was in the garden on the, and on the cross, somehow incomprehensible to us, that time stood still to him while every single person, an infinite number of people, was seen in vision by Jesus. So he could know personally every person's sins, weaknesses, pains, sorrows, etc. So that he could take those upon himself in the atoning sacrificial act. So when we think that Jesus suffered for us, he truly suffered for us individually and personally. It became an intimate atonement, not just a group thing. Verse 13, Now the Spirit knoweth all things. Since the Spirit knows all things, Christ could have known what it was like to suffer or to feel the guilt of sin, but he had to actually experience it in order to take our suffering upon him. Nevertheless, the Son of God suffereth according to the flesh, that he might take upon him the sins of of his people, that he might blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance. And now, behold, this is the testimony which is in me. Alma has broached a topic which some of, of his listeners might question. He has stated that this coming atoning Messiah will actually learn something. Alma understands that there will be those who might not understand what he means, so he clarifies. Alma confirms that the Spirit knoweth all things. In other words, this experience of pain, afflictions, and death is not teaching the Messiah anything that he would not have understood on some level. Nevertheless, the entire experience is what allows the Messiah to be merciful and blot out their transgressions. Alma testifies that this process is essential to the mission of the atoning Messiah, and that was by Grant uh, Gardner. Jesus Christ is taking upon him the effects of the sins of all mankind, was thus exposed to the awful and to Jesus' unusual withdrawal of that spirit, which had been his constant companion from the beginning. President Brigham Young explained, The father withdrew his spirit from his son at the time he was to be crucified. At the very moment, at the hour when the crisis came to him for, to offer up his life, the father withdrew himself withdrew his spirit, that is what made him sweat blood. If he had had the power of God upon him, he would not have sweat blood. I think Brigham Young is modifying this where he says that that God withdrew his spirit on the cross. I think he withdrew his spirit in the garden. Elder Maxwell said in Gethsemane, the suffering Jesus began to be sore, amazed, or in the Greek awestruck and astonished. Imagine Jehovah, the creator of this and other worlds, astonished. Jesus knew cognitively what he must do, but not experientially. He had never personally known the exquisite and exacting process of an atonement before. Thus, when the agony came in its fullness, it was so much, much worse than even he had with his unique intellect had ever imagined. No wonder an angel appeared to strengthen him. The cumulative weight of all mortal sins, past, present, and future, pressed upon that perfect, sinless, and sensitive soul. All our infirmities and sicknesses were somehow, too, a part of the awful arithmetic of the atonement." Verse 14. Now I say unto you that ye must repent and be born again, for the Spirit saith, If ye are not born again, ye cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Therefore come and be baptized unto repentance, that ye may be washed from your sins. Sins are remitted not in the waters of baptism, as we say casually, but rather as we receive the cleansing and sanctifying influence of the Spirit in our lives. That was from Millett McConkie. Continuing verse 14, that ye may have faith on the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sins of the world, who is mighty to save and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. Elder McConkie said sometimes someone will say, well, I have been baptized into the church. I'm a member of the church. I'm a member of the church. I'll just go along and live in an ordinary sort of life. I won't commit any great sins or crimes. I'll have a reasonably good Christian life, and eventually I will gain the kingdom of God. I don't understand it that way I think that baptism is a gate it is a gate which puts us on a path and the name of the path is the straight and narrow path the straight and narrow path leads upward from the gate of baptism to the celestial kingdom of heaven after a person has entered the gate of baptism he has to press forward with a steadfastness in Christ as Nephi expresses it having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men and if he endures to the end then he gains the promised reward. Verse 15, Yea, I say unto you, Come and fear not, and lay aside every sin which easily doth beset you. Alma is not counseling the people to put away their sins one at a time, a bit here and a bit there. This is the world's approach. It may sound commendable, but it is terrestrial at best. To be born again is to have our natures changed not always immediately, but certainly in process of time. To lay aside every sin is to rid oneself of all sin and the desire for it, to put off all sinfulness, to confess and forsake sin, and to rely on the merits and mercies of the Messiah, of the Holy Messiah. That was from Millen McConkie. Continuing verse 15, which doth bind you down to destruction, yea, come and and go forth and show unto your God that ye are willing to repent of your sins and enter into a covenant with him to keep his commandments and witness it unto him this day by going into the waters of baptism. Of course they witness after that that they are willing to take upon them the name of, of the Son and keep his commandments which he has given them. When we partake of the sacrament we witness the same thing. We witness at baptism. When we partake of it we renew it each time. You enter into a covenant and witness it and refresh it that way. They use almost the same words here, witnessing unto him by water but here's here it's by the sacrament and that's by Hugh Nibley. Verse 16, And whosoever doeth this, and keepeth keepeth the commandments of God from thenceforth, the same will, will remember that I say unto him, Ye will remember that I have said unto him, He shall have eternal life, according to the testimony of the Holy Spirit, which testifieth in me. And now, my beloved brethren, do you believe these things? Behold, I say unto you, Yea, I know that ye believe them. And the way that I know that ye believe them is by the manifestation of the Spirit which is in me. And now because your faith is strong concerning that, you can, yea, concerning the things which I have spoken, great is my joy, for as I said unto you from the beginning that I had much desire that ye were not in a state of uh, or dilemma or state of dilemma like your brother, and even so I have found that my desires have been gratified. For I perceive that ye are in the paths of righteousness. I perceive that ye are in the path which leads to the kingdom of God. Yea, I perceive that ye are making his paths straight or strict. Little McConkie said, as members of the church, if we chart a course leading to eternal life and are going in the right direction and step by step and phase by phase are perfecting our souls by overcoming the world, then it is absolutely guaranteed. There is no question, whatever about it, we shall gain eternal life. If we chart a course and follow it to the best of our ability in this life, then when we go out of this life, we'll continue in exactly that same course. Verse 20, I perceive that it has been made known unto you by the testimony of his word that he cannot walk in crooked paths, neither doth he vary from that which he hath said, neither hath he a shadow of turning from the right to the left or from from that which is right to that which is wrong. Therefore, his course is one eternal round. Elder Rudger Clausen said, God's work is everlasting, and with him it is one eternal round. He uses the words firstly and lastly in order that we, by our finite minds, may be able to understand. But to him there is no beginning of his works. There is no end to them. It is a beautiful thought, isn't it? It gives you the idea at once of eternal life, something that continues and never ends. It is a tremendous thought and quite beyond our comprehension. There is no man in this room. There is no woman in this assembly that can comprehend, can begin to grasp the idea of eternal life. We can feel it. We, we just feel it in our in our very bones. We feel that we are destined to live forever. We feel that, but we cannot explain it. Verse 21. And he doth not dwell in unholy temples, neither can filthiness or anything which is unclean be, be received into the kingdom of God. Therefore, I say unto you, the time shall come, yea, and it shall be at the last day, that he who is filthy shall remain in his filthiness. He's talking about sons of perdition. When, when uh, In the Book of Mormon, when they're talking about uh, those that inherit different kingdoms, they're always talking in extremes. It's either celestial or sons of perdition. There's nothing in between. 22. And now, my beloved brethren, I have said these things unto you, that I might awaken you to a sense of your duty to God, that ye may walk blameless before him, that ye may walk after the holy order of God, after which ye have received, ye have been received. And now I would that ye should be humble and be submissive and, and gentle, easy to be entreated. Full of patience and long suffering, being temperate in all things, being diligent in keeping the commandments of God at all times, asking for whatsoever things ye stand in need, both spiritual and temporal, always returning thanks unto God for whatsoever things ye do receive. These aren't acts, but states of mind. Hugh Nibley said, I don't see in this list of virtues, hard work, thrift, drive, ambition, prudence, smarts. I don't see any of that at all. You find the same thing in Isaiah. The sins Isaiah lists are the things we consider virtues. The virtues Isaiah lists are the things we consider weaknesses and wimpishness. Only a wimp would would have all of these things. Being diligent and asking for whatever you want. Notice you're always submissive. You do the asking of what you stand in need. Always returning thanks, temperate, diligent, keeping the commandments, patient, gentle, etc. And so forth. This is what God demands of us and what we won't give. This is a very important theme in the Book of Mormon. Always having faith and charity. Verse 24. And see that ye have faith, hope, and charity, and then ye will always abound in good works. Elder Maxwell said, being perfect perfect is not a vague, generalized condition, but the acquiring of of key attributes. Our Father is described not only as as omnipotent and omniscient, but also as having ultimate capacity in justice and mercy. These qualities, therefore, are those we are either to acquire or to develop much more deeply. C.S. Lewis observed that we must realize that God wants a people of a particular sort, not just obedience to a set of rules. Uh, Joseph B. Worthland said, Consider President McKay's comments regarding the many little things that build our spirituality. Every noble impulse, every unselfish expression of love, every brave suffering for the right, every surrender of self to something higher than self, every loyalty to an ideal, every unselfish devotion to principle, every helpfulness to humanity, every act of self-control, every fine courage of the soul undefeated by pretense or policy, but by being, doing, and living of good for the very good's sake. That is spirituality. He also taught that spirituality is the consciousness of victory over self and of communion with the infinite. Spirituality impels one to conquer difficulties and acquire more and more strength. To feel one's faculties unfolding and truth expanding the soul is one of life's sublimest experiences. These little things, which in reality become such big things, bring perspective to our lives as we learn to conquer them one by one in our effort to gain strength. And this we do in a spirit of humility and gratitude to our Heavenly Father. Alma expressed it best when he said, and that's quoting Alma 7.23 the, that I just read a little bit, little bit ago. Verse 25, And may the Lord bless you and keep your garments spotless, that ye may at last be brought to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the holy prophets who have ever been since the world began, having your garments spotless, even as their garments are spotless, in the kingdom of heaven, to go no more out. Elder McConkie said, Our Lord's church is the kingdom of God on earth. Faithful members of, the, of that church, those who adhere to the standards of the kingdom, are the children of the kingdom. They are followers or disciples of the Master because they believe the gospel of the kingdom. Special blessings are reserved for them, and they are commanded to bring forth fruit, meat for the Father's kingdom. Children of the kingdom eventually shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 26. And now, my beloved brethren, I have spoken these words unto you according to the Spirit which testifieth in me. And my soul doth exceedingly rejoice because of the exceeding diligence and heed which ye have given unto my word. And now he's going to give an apostolic blessing much like our current apostles and prophets do. May the peace of God rest upon you and upon your houses and lands and upon your flocks and herds and all that you possess, your women and your children, according to your faith and good works from this time forth and forever. And thus I have spoken. Amen. The city of Gideon remained righteous for several years. They found Korihor preaching false doctrine and made him leave Gideon. However, when Samuel the Lamanite preached, he he specially named the city of Gideon to experience a woe because of their wickedness. So next, Alma is is off to the city of Melech in chapter 7. Or in chapter 8, I mean, I bear testimony of the truth of these things. And as Elder Bateman said, that the atonement was a personal, intimate experience where Jesus experienced each of our sins and weaknesses because in doing so, then he would be able to, to know how best to serve and help us to get through them. I bear testimony that that's true in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time. Bye.